Morning, everyone. Um, so today's readings come from Philippians 1, uh, verses 1 to 11 and 27 to 30. I'm not sure what page number these are, but I'll give you a minute. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, and that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Thanks for reading, Mark. Uh, You'll find an outline for the sermon on the back of your service sheets, uh, so you can see where we're going. It's quite a full outline. There's not much space for making notes. Um, We're kind of doing things out of order. Uh, If you've been around the last few weeks, you know we've already had four weeks in Philippians, and yet we're looking at the opening section. That's because I was sick when um, I was meant to be preaching this passage. So we've come back to the beginning. Uh, we had that those few verses at the end, 27 to 30, but we're not going to look at those much, uh, mostly verses 1 to 11. Let me pray uh, for us, and then we'll get in. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this letter from the Apostle Paul to the Christians in Philippi. And we thank you that it is a letter, that it has words that speak today to us, your holy people here in Croydon. And we pray that your spirit, who inspired and caused these words to be written all those years ago, would be our teacher this morning, would help us to understand, to take to heart what you're saying, and to be changed for Jesus' glory. Amen. Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. To what extent are you losing your life for Jesus and his gospel? To what degree are you spending yourself for Jesus and the gospel? 
Philippians is a letter all about service, active, all of life service of the Lord Jesus, purposeful participation in the cause of the gospel. Paul says, as we saw last week in chapter 1, verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul is saying, life is all about Jesus, exalting him, following him, spreading his fame, sharing his love, serving his cause. When I was learning the cello as a teenager, I occasionally had lessons when my teacher would uh, really kind of pick up on every imperfection. Uh, he'd get really animated. He'd start telling me to uh, make sure my, my elbow was up and my bow was straight and I was focusing on the dynamics and the intonation and letting the cello sing. And it kind of felt like he was laying into me. But he would say he's only doing that because I was doing well and he wanted to help me do even better. And I think that is the kind of approach that we find from the Apostle Paul in this letter to the Philippians. It's the most positive of all his letters. He's full of joy and thanks for the Philippians. They're doing really well. And it's because they're doing really well that he urges them to press on, not to settle, not to plateau, but to pursue excellence for the glory of God. I reckon Philippians is a really fitting letter for us here at Barney's. Because there's so much that is good, so much to give thanks for, so much that is healthy and positive. And we need to hear the encouragement of Philippians. You're doing really well. And we need to hear the call of Philippians, not to settle, but to press on to pursue excellence, to strive to know Christ better, strive to love him more, strive to live lives worthy of the gospel, true to our identity, united, partnering together in the cause of Christ. So this morning we're looking at the opening to this joy-filled letter. And it follows the usual template for a first century letter. We're told firstly who it's from, Then we're told who it's to, we have a short greeting, and then there's a thanksgiving that Paul expands into a prayer. So we're told who it's from. It's from Paul and Timothy, and it's interesting that they describe themselves as servants of Christ Jesus. As I've said, service is a major theme throughout the letter. We're told who it's to. It's to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers, and deacons. There are two important ideas in that phrase. First is that this letter is to all the members of the church. This call to active, all of life, service of the gospel, it's not just for the church leaders or the ministry workers, it's for every member of the church. The second idea is that of identity. Paul describes his readers as God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. See, every Christian has two homes. For his first readers, they live in Philippi and they live in Christ. And this idea is developed through the letter as Paul speaks about and uses the language of citizenship. 
Now that would have been a very familiar idea and word for the Christians in Philippi because Philippi was a Roman colony and residents in Philippi were very proud of their identity as Roman citizens. But Paul is impressing on them that they have a far higher and more privileged status. They are citizens of heaven. So if you look over to chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's how it's two. Then there's a brief greeting, verse 2, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then verses 3 to 11, Paul's thanksgiving and prayer. He shares what he prays for the Philippians, what he's thankful for and what his primary prayer concern is. And so we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at Paul's prayer under those two points on your sheets. Firstly, he gives thanks for their partnership in the gospel. Secondly, he prays for them to pursue what is best. Before we get into it, it's worth pausing and reflecting on what an encouragement it must have been for the first recipients of this letter. To, to, to get this letter from the Apostle Paul, to hear that he's praying for them, that he's giving thanks for them, he's joyful for them, he's confident, and he's praying for their growth. It makes me think, I wonder how often we share with one another what we're praying. Not just saying, I'm praying for you, but actually sharing what I'm praying, what I'm thankful for, what I'm praying for. It's very encouraging to receive that kind of message. So firstly, verses 3 to 8, Paul thanks God for their partnership in the gospel. Paul was a very thankful person. See, he actually believed what he preached about salvation by grace. He believed that God has been incredibly kind to us, far more kind than we deserve. And when you grasp that, well, life becomes fundamentally about giving thanks. Paul writes this letter, as uh, we've learned already, from prison, almost certainly in Rome. As he says later in chapter 1, he, he doesn't know what the future holds. He, there's a real possibility of execution. Now, if that was my situation and I was writing to you guys, I would be full of self-concern, self-pity. I'd want you all to know how awful it is. But not Paul. There's no self-pity. He's full of joy. There's no complaining. He's just giving thanks. So let's read again from verse 3. Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. So there are three things here that Paul is particularly thankful for. Firstly, their remembrance of him. See, when Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you, it could and probably should be translated, I thank my God for all your remembering of me. 
In other words, Paul is thankful that they've been concerned for him. And as we learn in the letter, that concern has led them to send supports. They've sent a guy called Epaphroditus all the way from Philippi in modern-day Greece to Rome to Paul, bringing financial and practical care and assistance. Secondly, Paul is thankful for their shared participation in the gospel, in gospel ministry. So look again at verse 4. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day till now. This word for partnership is the same word used for business partnerships. So imagine uh, you set up a business with a couple of friends. You're all partners in that business. You all share ownership and responsibility for that enterprise, uh, whatever it may be. And Paul is saying here, as Christians, we're all partners in the enterprise of the gospel. We all share ownership and responsibility for the ministry of the gospel, for the gospel to be spread and proclaimed to more and more people, for the gospel to bear fruit more and more fully in our lives. For the Philippians, their partnership has been expressed in many different ways. As you read through the letter, you find that they're praying for Paul and his ministry. They've given financially to support him. They've provided practical assistance. They're holding out the word of life. They're sharing the good news themselves. And they're striving together to live lives worthy of the gospel. You find this same idea in verse 7. So from the middle of verse 7, Paul says, Whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. Now, on the surface, it sounds there like Paul is saying, regardless of my situation, whether I'm in chains or I'm out proclaiming the gospel, we're all Christians. We all, we've all received God's grace. We all share in the blessings of salvation. Something like that. But I think Paul is saying something more personal than that. See, the word for share in, share with, is literally partner with. Same words. And so I think what Paul is saying is, I'm I'm full of joyful thanks and confidence for you because you have partnered with me in my ministry, in the grace that God has given me for my gospel work. You've partnered with me when I was out proclaiming the gospel And you've continued to partner with me even now that I'm in chains. One translation puts it like this. It is right for me to think this way about you all because I have you on my heart. For whether I'm in chains or defending and establishing the good news, you are all sharing with me in this privileged work. You are all sharing with me in this privileged work. Some years ago, John Dixon wrote a book called Promoting the Gospel. And it's really a book all about gospel partnership. And it's a really encouraging book because he goes through the many different ways that we can all be partners and express that partnership in the gospel. Some of us will be on the front line publicly proclaiming the good news of Christ. Others of us will be behind the scenes praying, giving financially to the work, organizing Others will be inviting and welcoming and extending hospitality, serving in all kinds of different ways. But we're all partners in the cause of the gospel. We're gifted in different ways. 
We have different personalities and opportunities, and so our partnership will look different. But you are all partners in the gospel. Think about a law firm. I don't know if you watch Suits or some other TV show about um, law firms. There's a kind of hierarchy of positions in whatever firm it is, isn't there? There's the, the lowly interns and the secretaries and the paralegals and the lawyers and then the partners. It's a kind of life ambition and significant goal to become a partner in a law firm. What Paul is saying here is that in the cause of the gospel, we're all partners. The moment you become a Christian, you become a partner with all the privileges and all the responsibilities that that entails. A couple of years ago, when we were setting up our church membership process, we toyed with calling it church partnership to try and capture this idea that we're all partners in the church's mission and ministry. We're not just members of the same club. We're partners in the same cause. All of us share ownership and responsibility for the mission and ministry of the church. Do you believe it? So Paul thanks God for their remembrance of him, their shared participation in gospel ministry. Thirdly, briefly, he thanks God for their, the certainty of their glorification. Look again at verse 6. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul is saying what God has started, he will finish. He is committed to transforming you and me into the image of his son Jesus. And we can be absolutely sure that God having chosen us before the foundation of the world, having sent his son to die for us on the cross, having called us to life through the gospel, having indwelt us with his Holy Spirit as the deposit and guarantee of eternity, having written our books, our names in the book of life, he is not going to abandon us. It's just not going to happen. What God has started, he will finish. And Paul delights in that. As he prays for the Philippians, he thinks about what will one day be true of them. When God completes his work and they're glorified, perfectly conformed to the image of his son. And it makes me wonder how often that features in our prayers for one another. Do we thank God for the work that he started and the certainty of its completion? You know, as I pray for my DNA group, as I pray for their growth, do I thank God for the work that he's done and the fact that he will complete it? Tim and Mark and Din and Bron will one day be glorified. They'll share in Christ's resurrection and reign. Wow! You know, praying like that for one another will fuel joy, won't it? And praying like that for one another will give us patience because it will help us to remember that we're all works in progress. We haven't arrived, and so we'll have a patience with one another. If you want to be part of a perfect church, you're going to be disappointed here at Barney's. You'll be disappointed at any church. But if you can find joy in watching people grow, seeing God continue his work, 
that he's going to bring to completion. There's plenty to rejoice in. So Paul gives thanks for their partnership in the gospel. Secondly, Paul prays for them to pursue what is best. The Philippians are a great church. They're doing really well, and Paul wants them to do even better. In verses 9 to 11, he tells them what he's praying for, and there's a tight logic in these verses. It's quite hard to unpick exactly what Paul is saying. So let's read it through, and then we'll follow through that logic. So verse 9 again. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. On your sheets, I've kind of um, separated it out into the different sub-clauses. Let's follow through. Paul is praying for their love to abound more and more. They're already a loving church. That's clear, isn't it? They've shown that in their gospel partnership. But Paul wants more. He wants them to grow in love. He wants their love to abound. It's a beautiful phrase, isn't it? More and more. Their love for Christ, their love for one another, their love for the lost. He prays for their love to abound with knowledge and insights. Not just sentimental love, but an informed love, a discerning love. A love that is directed by knowledge of God and his priorities and knowledge of others and their needs. Love with a Christ-like mindset. A love that expresses itself in selfless service. He prays this so that they would be able to discern what is best. can feel like a bit of an anticlimax, a bit of a letdown. Paul's praying that they'd have the ability to make good decisions And he's not thinking here about right-wrong decisions, but wisdom decisions. Not, should I love my parents, but how often should I visit them? How often should I call them? Decisions about how to use our limited resources in the most loving ways. How to invest our time and our treasure and our talents. And so, can you see, what is best will look different depending on who you are depending on your stage of life, depending on your gifting and resources, depending on your personality and opportunities. He prays all this so that they may be pure, blameless, and righteous. In other words, he's not only praying that they'll know what is best, but that they'll do it. They'll do what is best. They'll pursue what is best in their actual day-to-day living. He's praying, isn't he, for them to make progress toward the goal of their salvation, becoming more like Christ, more pure and blameless and filled with the fruit of righteousness. He's praying all this with the day of Christ in view. In other words, he's he's praying for what is best according to the values of eternity. He wants the Philippians to be spending their lives using their resources Conscious of the ultimate reality that Christ will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And how people respond to Christ in this life will determine their eternity. Paul wants them to know there's only one life. It will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And Paul prays all this ultimately to the glory and praise of God's. 
He wants them to pursue what is best, not for their glory. He wants them to work hard and pursue excellence, not so people think well of them. It's God who's working in the Philippians, God who will bring that work to completion. And so it's God who deserves all the thanks and praise. And so Paul wants them to pursue excellence for the glory and praise of God. I don't know about you, I've always found this prayer a little bit difficult to understand. It's such a tight logic, so dense, that ideas can seem a bit abstract. But can you see something more of what Paul is praying for? How it follows on from what has come before. He's thankful for their partnership in the gospel. Now he wants that partnership to grow. He's thankful for the love they've already shown. Now he wants that love to abound more and more. They're already bearing the fruit of righteousness. He wants them to be filled. This was really the vibe over the last two days on the Revision Workshop. There was a really encouraging recognition of all that is good and healthy and positive here at Barney's, how God has grown a a rich gospel culture and community. And, And really looking forward, our vision for the future is that we'd build on that, that that would grow more and more. The Philippian church was doing really well, but Paul doesn't want them to settle, but to press on, to pursue excellence, for the glory of God's. And I think this helps us in understanding the big idea, the, the melodic line that sounds through this whole letter. See, Paul presents himself and others as examples for us to follow. And he calls his readers and us to wholehearted service of the Lord Jesus. As an example, just turn over to chapter 3. I'm going to read from verse 10. Chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says, I want to know Christ. He already knows Christ. He wants to know Christ more. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation, literally partnership, in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. This last week at the university has been Jesus Week, as Jack shared last week, a week of heightened evangelism. Uh, Christian students wearing pink jumpers and inviting their friends to come and hear about God's love. When you're a student, you can be full of zeal and passion, can't you? Maybe a bit idealistic, maybe even a bit crazy. And then life happens. You get a job, start a family, take on a mortgage. Maybe you become more realistic, more sensible. But maybe you begin to settle. Maybe you begin to settle for a Christianity that's good enough rather than pursuing excellence. A Christianity that's static rather than pressing on. 
a Christianity that's content with sideline support of the gospel rather than active, wholehearted partnership. This is what Paul says here in chapter 3, verse 15. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. In other words, Paul is saying the mature Christian is the one who's straining forward. The mature Christian is the one who's pressing on. It's not that you kind of are zealous at the start and then reach a point of maturity where you can plateau. No, the mature Christian is pressing on just as much at 80 as they were at 18. Paul combines sensible and crazy. He's saying the mature Christian is sensible enough. They see reality clearly enough to make crazy decisions. The kind of decisions that led to Paul ending up in chains. The kind of decisions that led Epaphroditus to go all the way from Philippi to Rome and almost lose his life for the work of Christ. The kind of decisions that led Christ to come from heaven to earth and earth to the cross. In October, there's a conference called CV. Christian vocation. It's for people who are thinking about whether vocational Christian ministry is for them. But I think the real value of the conference is broader than that. Everyone who attends is encouraged to ask something like this question. How can I, as the person I am, with the gifts and personality and opportunities God has given me, do most for the cause of the gospel? It's a great question for everyone to consider. And I think it's a question that resonates with Paul's prayer here in Philippians 1. Because it's a question really about pursuing what is best, isn't it? The answer to that question will look different to each of us, depending on the stage of life we're in. But it's a question for all of us to consider. And I'd love you to do that today and this week. How can I, as the person I am, with the gifts, the personality, the opportunities God has given me, do most for the cause of the gospel? How can I invest myself in a life of selfless service? How can I live out my partnership in the gospel? What would it look like for me to play my part in the gospel enterprise for the glory of God? We've been looking at Paul's prayer. And so I think the final application has got to be that we pray. And what I'm going to do is just give you a couple of minutes to write or compose in your head a prayer of your own. It might be for another individual or it might be for the whole church here. A prayer of thanks for gospel partnership giving thanks for specific ways in which you've seen people live this out. And then a prayer for more. A prayer that our love would abound more and more. A prayer for discernment of what is best. A prayer for pursuit of excellence for the glory of God. I'll give you a couple of minutes to write, think, and pray that prayer and then we'll come back together.
where we didn't finish writing, uh, do finish it um, this afternoon and then pray it. Pray it this week and on into the weeks ahead as we continue through Philippians.